Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Axis, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and our guest this week is John Ottman, a prolific film editor and composer whose credits include The Usual Suspects, Superman Returns, and this year's Bohemian Rhapsody, for which John received his first Oscar nomination in film editing. In our episode, we cover a wide range of topics, among them, John's vital role in creating the musical identity of the X-Men franchise, his experience working on Valkyrie, the true story of the German officers who attempted to assassinate Adolf Hitler in July of 1944, and his extensive work on this year's Bohemian Rhapsody, which grossed over $830 million and was nominated for five Academy Awards. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation. John, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's really a pleasure. We're going to be talking a lot about editing and composing today, but I want to set the record straight. Why are you talking to me? No. (laughs) I want to set the record straight in saying that, you know, you're a director in your own right. and, And even though we're going to be using different terms... I think what you do is is pure storytelling, is filmmaking. You are a filmmaker, regardless of the roles you take on. And it goes back to uh, your start at USC. I'm a student at USC right now. And I thought it would be a fun way to kick things off by asking you, looking back all these years at USC, what were some of the first concepts you were grasping and that really helped you tiptoe into the filmmaking world on a professional level? Well, I guess I was just um, using USC as an excuse to make movies, you know, and um, I'm not saying I didn't absorb a lot of valuable lessons being there. Even though I'm not a flag waver for universities in terms of the sports teams and so forth, I am a little bit for the USC Film School only because in the end of the day when it's all over, you were, at least in my generation, I don't know what they're teaching now, they kind of prepare you for the real world of filmmaking and you're not really in the the fantasy land, which is, I think... uh, some film schools, you know, you can just do your thing and, you know, it's open-ended, whatever you want. We don't, we'll don't. we kind of keep a hands-off approach. But then they go into the real world and, and they, re- they see how things work and it's a shock. So I think the politics and the difficulty in which USC makes it sometimes to make a movie in terms of get the equipment and, I mean, there's even politics and how you put together a crew and so forth. I think um, it's good in the end, you know. I wanted to navigate that system and make as many movies as I could, especially in the, the first semester, which is, uh, was it 290, where you're making, well, in my generation, five Super 8 movies, you know. But that was cool because you just had the complete freedom to go out and um, write, direct, and produce, and, and finish five movies in the semester. And so you're really just on this uh, assembly line making these movies. But it was really probably my, my, my best time at, at USC doesn't mean it was completely uh, open-ended. I mean, you then you had to present them to the class and the teacher, and then you got the feedback, and you learned a lot. And um, then when 310 hit, which was the next one, that's where a lot of the restrictions and the politics started coming in, and you have to team up with a partner, so you have to depend on someone else to do something that you were doing yourself. Like, you know, you have to let go and have someone either be your DP or be your editor, and that's just horrible for me, you know. But but you learn, you know, and, and that teaches you how to be able to explain what you want to someone and work with other people, you know. So yeah. but one of the things that helps at USC, and I'm going to dive forward by a number of years, is obviously, you know, you're creating relationships. You're meeting people, uh, sometimes in school, sometimes outside of school. And you obviously, soon after, began a relationship 
with people, again, like Brian and Christopher McQuarrie. And I wanted to begin talking about a specific project by talking about X-Men 2 specifically. The first thing I want to bring up about X-2, which really struck me, and I remember this vividly, is uh, the opening sequence with Nightcrawler in the White House. Right. It's it, Mozart on steroids. On steroids, yeah, absolutely. Back in the day, uh, when you would release a film score, you could only release so many minutes of music because of union rules for the musicians and so forth. And so you have to make the agonizing decision of what oh, so many cues you have to cut out. And so I'm like, well, I mean, it's sort of half me, half Mozart, so I'll cut that one out. Of course, people always wanted that cue. You know, it's the opening action sequence of film, and I was temping with all this, uh, you know, film score action music. And, you know, it worked, it was exciting, but there was nothing special about it at all. And it just felt like your standard opening of a movie, and it just didn't really push the needle for anybody. And then, um, you know, I remembered back in the previs of the scene that I used a little piece of, uh, of that. But it would never really carry it very well, because the piece just alone doesn't really doesn't have the testosterone in it to do it. So anyway, so I laid it in, I laid in a recording of it and then basically on top of it added the anvil hits and the drums and then would lapse out of it for 15 seconds and then go back into it again just to service the scene. It just transformed it into a, a classic sequence that uh, basically transcends time. <laughs> but but it, you know, it's, it's, so it's not dated by silly film score action music. But it, it brings me to the point in general, going back to the theme where you're talking about the X2 mm -hmm. theme, got me thinking about the emotional role of themes. And you had something to say about it. Quote, I like to have fully fleshed out themes, whether they'll end up in the film or not. Sometimes it's a suite I put at the end credits, which is something that John William does do, right. as opposed to theme fragments we hear today. A lot of times I will take my phone and I'll whistle something into it. Sometimes that moment becomes a theme. It was interesting to hear about this idea of archiving ideas for themes. Yeah, I mean, when I whistle something, it's, um, it's usually what I'm agonizing about the project that's coming up, though. So the thing I'm whistling it usually either gets dumped completely or a vestige of that becomes the theme. So I don't really have a whole collection of, of like um, unused whistling that I, that I, I could go, go back to and, um, and maybe work out for another film. I've never done that except for a one cue that I did for a film that um, the score was never used, Stardust. It was never even recorded. It never made it to the, it's a long story. But so I took a big section of that and used it in Astro Boy, you know, um, not for the main theme, but for like a, the end, if you ever saw, I'm sure you never saw Astro Boy, which is tragic because it's a really great score. Sometimes you're, the things you're the proudest of are things that no one ever saw, you know, um, or heard. But um, anyway, there was a whole ending sequence that went on and on and were kind of just people talking to each other and I couldn't fill the space. And I literally just took that piece from uh, Stardust that I had done and reworked it. And I remember my music editor looking at me and we're looking at each other. It sounded so beautiful. As, as the London Symphony uh, players were playing it, we just used like, oh, because it's like, oh, the piece, it's like it got resurrected, oh, you know, because it was one of our favorite little things I did for Stardust. So it was heartwarming to see it live. What you had the chance to do, which I think not a lot of composers do, is, is the idea of evolving a theme. You know, you have X2 and then X-Men Days of Future Past and, and Apocalypse and bringing back the theme over and over. And from my understanding, mm. there's an 11-year gap between X2 and, and Days of Future Past. And from my understanding, there was a reluctance, perhaps, at the beginning to bring back the theme 
fearing to be trapped in this idea of nostalgia. Exactly, you know? yeah. So could you talk a little well, bit we'd, about we'd that? Well, you know, we'd gone through Superman Returns, and I think um, there's the great things in that film and, and uh, things that I think uh, restricted us because of the, the, the fear of not being reverential to the original. And so we were kind of trapped in a way, and um, I guess we didn't have to be. But if we went completely off the rails and, went, uh, and did something 180 degrees away from the original Superman, we'd be skewered, you know. And yet you stay too close to it and you're skewered also. So anyway, I think Brian was fearful that because of that, we would be accused of the same, you know, old people making X-Men again, haven't moved on, and, you know, using the same theme. And I kept trying to tell him, if the material's great, and it is part of a franchise anyway, the, the theme will, by default, update itself, you know, without even having to do anything. The quintessential example is the James Bond theme or whatever. You know, if you do a modern James Bond or Mission Impossible, it's, it's going to live on forever. You know, in, in X-Men 2, I'd put a little nod to the theme in the Fox logo. And uh, the orchestra loved it, and they clapped. Thought it was so clever and everything. And then the memos, the internal memos, and the you know the lawyers and la la la. And 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 they just said, we can't do that, you know. And I tried to give them examples of where they had changed their logo for like Alien or something. I'm like, but anyways, I lost, and so we didn't use it. So when I was editing together um, Days of Your Past, I put that nod in the logo. So then when I presented the film to the executives, you know, uh, one of the executives was like, oh my God, I love that. <laughs> and so boom, it's like, you know, and I'm for, now we had to have it. And so the executive, she was like, but this is rousing, it's exciting, you know? And so, and so I get that thing resurrected, damn it, you know, because I was always upset that, you know, it had been deep sixed for a while. Because to me, of course, I'm biased. That was, that's the themed X-Men, you know, but, uh, or X-Men movies. But even as it were, I was paranoid, so I updated it with, like, modern drums behind it, you know. And in retrospect, I didn't have to do that. But, but it also made sense, I guess, and I'm rambling here, but um, I'm kind of going down memory lane now, is that was decidedly more of a modern score. You know, I didn't want to do the full Hollywood X-Men 2 or Apocalypse kind of score because it just wasn't that kind of movie, you know. So I think that it was decidedly darker, and I used an orchestra, but a lot more synthesizers and so forth to make it a little more dark and, I don't know, modern quote unquote. Music has a way to subconsciously access emotion in your average audience member in a way that they can't really pinpoint. And I'm right, trying right. to understand what is it about, you know, I don't want to say the modern Hollywood business, but why do a lot of, you know, composers or filmmakers try and stay away from fully fleshed out themes? 
I, I think there's a number of things. I think first there's this fear that if you do a thematic score, it's going to feel dated. But writing film music is an art. And there's also an art to writing a theme and having it not sound dated, but still keeping those sensibilities alive in terms of character motifs. And it doesn't mean every single character would walk in the room. A theme should sound, you know, but in uh, every film is different. But I think uh, there's that fear. And then number two, the, the way films are designed now, they're so frenetic and fast moving. There's really no time for a composer to have a moment to play his theme, you know, as it were. Nevertheless, as you talked about, I still want to have that full-fledged theme that I can draw from and not kind of wing it as I'm going along with little snippets of themes that I'm kind of making up as I go along. I want to know what the basis is for the score. And then uh, there's a third reason. Successful composers are doing five and six, seven movies a year, and they want to come in, do their job, make a shitload of money, and so... They'll literally come in and uh, they'll, they'll write what works and, and leave. And number four, there's this new thing in town that started about, what, 15 years ago now, 20 years ago, where now composers are, they have to be like uh, companies with uh, many writers that uh, produce a product. There's a security now because if things go awry on the film and there's last minute changes, you have a bunch of writers to fix it. But it's less of a signature. It's not coming from a person anymore. You're, I mean, that you're directing these people, but it's never the same as when it's coming from you, you know, completely. It, you know, there's something that happens when you're at the keyboard and you stumble across things that your writers are never going to stumble across things in the same way. There are some composers where you can hear the score and know it's that composer, but it used to be more of like, you know, you knew that was a Jerry Goldsmith score, you knew that was a John Williams score, you know that was a John Barry score. You know, even though they were prolific and their styles were changing, you knew it was them because they were the way they approached things. I guess those are the four main reasons why this is happening. You know, you're obviously a very prolific editor and composer, and I was trying a couple days ago to understand the correlation. It's such an interesting mix of two professions. And the only correlation I could come up with is that both have to do with the rhythm of the movie. You could make a case that there would be a negative in it if I were a person who was unable to separate myself from one job or the other. But I'm, I'm able to do that and step back from it because there is there would be a danger in that if you bring someone fresh on with fresh eyes, because I'm that person who want to come onto a film just as a composer. And you're like their first test audience. You're the outsider that hasn't been involved. And you can ask all these questions, you know, and that's good because your job is, is going to be to tell the story and make it the story work. If you're a composer who's going to have the filmmaking wherewithal to say, here's what I think we need to do, whereas other guys might just copy the temp score. You know, it depends on the composers and the relationship that composer might have with the filmmaking team. Yeah, it's an obvious correlation, of course, because both are storytelling. I mean, a good composer should be telling a story. And not just slapping things in that work for the moment, but there should be an overall arc if possible. And I always say that classic film scores and maybe a couple today, you know, you can take away from the film and you can hear a story being told. And that's the mark of a great film score. Have you always seen a specific way in which one has helped you on the other? When you jump on, and we'll talk about the way you, you schedule trying to work out something like this, yeah. but is John the composer ever glad that John the editor did this or made things easier or possibly a little harder? Uh, um, I guess John the composer, when I'm doing the both, discovers things that John the editor should have done <laughs> when, when he's scoring the scenes and, um, and then tells John, if he did this, you might make it better. But it's not for a self-serving reason from the composer's side. Every phase of a movie, you were able to step back from it again. So I'll be scoring a scene, even though I've been very involved editing the thing for, what, six, seven months. And I'll bring it in here and my, my studio. 
and I'll be scoring the scene and it'll, a light bulb will go off like, well, wait a minute. It would be better if I had done that. And it fucks me as a composer because it means I can't do that cue now. I got to change that. So I do it for the reason for the movie, not, not to make my life easier as a composer. It continues too because then you finish scoring the film and you uh, get to the final dub stage and you're watching the movie and you're, the score's on it and you've the cues have been approved with you and the director and, and other people and it all seems to be working perfectly and then you get up there in the dub stage and you watch it through and you're like, this cue doesn't work. It just it's not right, you know. So now what do we do? It's like we've already recorded the scores. Then that comes in. Then I start. Then I huddle with my music editor and we'll you know we'll take out tracks and, and you know, try to make it work. Stuff. Absolutely. So. Another project I wanted to talk to you about was Valkyrie, which I rewatched mm -hmm. yesterday. I was so glad I did. I forgot how great that movie is. And for people who don't know, this is a true story of the nearly successful attempt by German army officers in July of 44 to assassinate Hitler and to use the Operation Valkyrie National Emergency Plan to take back control of the country. And it's a fantastic story uh, written by Chris McQuarrie and Nathan Alexander. I wanted to tie this this project by talking about the perks of on-location editing. You know, when you mm. go to Germany, mm. what do you think is the importance of being on location and editing when you're shooting abroad? And and did that specific case bring any special surprises for you in, in rearranging the story and discovering new things that were needed as you were going? Oh, yeah. Well, um, there was something we needed all along, we knew, but no one wanted to uh, budget it, which was Africa. So that's a longer story. And that came later, right? Months later, because they kept saying, well, we just find a way for us not to have that scene, you know, and, and so we did. I'm, I'll go back to what you're saying and we're talking about in a second, but um, it reminds me of that because um, all along, I'm like, you know, we, we all knew we needed it, but, you know, there's that, there's that denial thing because of budget and producers like you know well find a way and so so really edited the film every which way and um, to try to not have that scene and it just never worked and so finally the writing was on the wall six months later when we're back in LA and um, and then we back went back into uh, pre-pro for the reshoots to shoot that in the desert in LA but um, yeah I mean it's very important to be on location no matter where you are because um, like you said it's uh, obvious you you are gonna need stuff always depends on on uh, your clout as an editor you know, in your relationship with that particular director and what they allow you to do. And Brian sort of would give me carte blanche to say, you know, whatever you need, we're going to, we'll do a list and we're going to shoot that no matter what. And so as I'm editing, I'll do slugs and so forth. And I'll have the scene in my mind the way I want to put it together. Cause I come from the old days where you had to imagine the scene first before you cut it. Cause you couldn't just slap things against the wall and digitally. And so I will, I'll create that scene and I'll encounter the landmines that, uh, of the things I need to create the scene I want. And, um, I'll make this list. And not that, that an editor should always fall back on pickups. I mean, the, the goal should be to not need them. But anyway, I'll do that list. And then and as we're shooting, I'll go out with, the, with another crew and shoot them. Or I'll put them on the list for the first unit crew to do. Or, I'll put on, or, or the second unit crew will get to it. And so um, by two or three months in, I'll, you know, I could have 30, 40 shots that we need. Much to the chagrin of the producers who had a living heart attack when they, when they see my list, you know. I mean, literally, you have like three shots in there and they have a heart attack. I'm like, oh, baby, there's more coming, you know. And again, I want to repeat that. It's not, it's not the goal to look for things to go shoot. Because I come from, as we all do, uh, we all come from a low-budget days in the beginning, beginning, like Usual Suspects, where, you know, you're not going to be able to go shoot a lot of stuff. And so you're going to 
make it work no matter what in the editing room. And that's kind of like a badge of honor in a way that, you know, I cut this film, I didn't need any pickups, you know, and that's great. And that should be a goal. But when you can do it and you can envision it, why not get it? But also, there's another reason, if you're on location, why it's very important to do this method that I talked about, because it'll save you millions later. For instance, on the X-Men films, you know, because of the tax rebate, everything had to be shot in Montreal, no matter what. So if you're going to do pickups, you can come back to Montreal. And so it's very expensive to go back there, start pre-pro again for all your reshoots or pickups or additional photography. So the more I can anticipate what we're going to need, the less we're going to have to come back and shoot later. And so um, on the X-Men films, you know, where, where sometimes the third acts were barely fleshed out, I was like, no, we have to shoot something now. We got to come up with it now or we're going to be screwed in the end. Because I was watching the movie yesterday, this, this specifically the sequence, obviously, where Stauffenberg plants the bomb. And like my palms were sweating. I remember Macquarie talking about the fact, you know, the bomb goes off and as for as long as possible, you don't hear or see Hitler again. Right. And people are like, you know, what are, what are you doing? Like people know that Hitler didn't die that way. And yet in the emotion of the moment, yeah. whether you're an educated or uneducated audience member, it, it feels as if you don't know. I think that's the success of Valkyrie, even though, you know, I th there's certain things that are not perfect about the film, but is, is that you have to suck people in to a story so much that even though they know the real thing, they're sucked into that story. But the big challenge of Valkyrie was, okay, at some point, almost like, well, I don't know, what's halfway through, whatever, you know Hitler didn't die, and you know the outcome, that you know the Stauffenberg dies, you know they all don't succeed. There has to be this euphoria in putting together this government, you know, and they're going to they're do it, they're going to do it, and so, you gotta, and so somehow you got to get so wrapped up in that, even though you know the outcome's not going to work. And that was a huge challenge, with the, the editing, the music, for sure, because the music had to convey that sense of hope and really make you forget what you already know. We've already considered Valkyrie. It isn't suitable. Not as it's currently written, but the Colonel has an idea I think we should consider. Excuse me, what is Valkyrie? Operation Valkyrie. The Reserve Army has thousands of men all over Berlin. Valkyrie is Hitler's contingency plan to mobilize those men during a national emergency. The sole purpose of the order is to protect Hitler's government if he's cut off or killed. And what use is this to us? Valkyrie is designed to contain civil unrest. But what if the SS were staging a coup? State security is trying to overthrow Hitler. Hitler's own reserve army, using Hitler's own plan, will have no choice but to seize power in Berlin to prevent the SS takeover. They'll think they're fighting for Hitler's government, not against it. While we quietly put a new government in place. But only if he's dead. How else are you going to convince people the SS are trying to seize power? We have to kill Hitler. It is obviously depends from project to project, but is there a way you orchestrate your schedule in regards to how much time uh, you spend on the editing when in that time there may be an overlap? Yeah, there's a big overlap. If I'm doing both jobs, the moment we start shooting, I'm freaked out <laughs> about this job, the other thing where down the road, there's this massive score I got to write and how the hell am I ever going to do that? I literally put on the calendar where the writing is going to have to kind of begin. And it's, you know, of course, I'm still editing the film, but I give myself twice the amount of time as another composer would give them. However, another composer isn't also editing film at the same time, so that's why I, I need the extra time, because I can only get in there every so often start writing a little bit. I'm yanked back to the editing room, because i got to keep cutting, or 
there's test screenings or there's ADR of the actors or there's visual effects problems or, you know, it doesn't, you know, so there's just a billion things that are always taking me away. So the editing never ends while I'm scoring the film, never. So I literally be on a, I remember at Superman Returns, they gave me a golf cart so I could take a golf cart between the, the scoring stage. I was, you know, scoring some stuff and the du final dub stage where we were dubbing, you know, and the editing room so I could race between these sections. And that's how frayed and insane it is for me. After Apocalypse, I told Brian, I can no longer do this. It's, it's killing me. I lost like 25 pounds in a bad way. It's just really bad for every, my lifestyle and my, my health because I'm not a believer in a, a staff of composers. And so when he called for Bohemian, I'm like, fuck, because I had said I'm not going to do it again, but I couldn't pass up because the intention was for me to do both again. You know, um, we'll talk about that. It's, 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 it's a crazy, I mean, that's why no one does that, but it's insane to do both those jobs. You know, I can't even really imagine what it physically, even creatively, I think like the demands that it must put on you to deliver time and time again. In this case, once the whole machine sets in motion, then there's a schedule, there's a timeline, there's yeah. an expectation. It's a mindfuck because I will be writing the score but then we'll have a test screening and we'll go test it, but it's with the temp score. And it'll constantly screw with my head because I'm very intimidated by the temp score I've created, but I have to do better than that. And I've inevitably written something different. But then I doubt myself when I go back to the test screening. I'm like, oh, shit, I didn't do that. Oh, that little flute trill there. I, I didn't do that in my cue, you know. And so I start freaking out that I'm going down over the wrong path, especially if we're having good test scores, you know. And, and, and I'm writing a score that's a little different, you know. I mean, same ilk, of course, but it's a crazy process. And this is why going back to pickups actually has everything to do with why I want to make sure I have a problem-free film in post. Because if, I, if we're reconceiving something, I'm screwed as a composer because I, I won't have the time to write the score. So I, it's in my self-interest. Everything's self-interest oriented when we're, when we're when I'm cutting the film because I'm seeing the future way down and, and I, I can't have anything blow up in my face. Before we talk about Bohemian Rhapsody, I wanted to ask couple more things in regards to your process as a composer and specifically the relationship that music can have with the soundtrack because I think it's it's really important to understand when a story needs music and when it doesn't we had this to say which I thought was fantastic quote it's really a viable thing to learn how to mix dialogue and sound effects with the music and the objective don't be the composer who wants to hear the music loud all the time close quote watching the movie dry and enjoying it dry in the editing room and understanding what is the the smallest amount of music we can get away with? Yeah, what is, what absolutely. Is I mean, uh, when I read the Valkyrie script, I'm like, oh, this would be great if this had like no score on it or very little, you know. But then as we're making it, I realize it's a caper. And the moment I would start score, it's like a light and a fuse. I couldn't stop it. However, having said that, I wanted to bury the score under sound effects and so forth and have the score be just uh, something that kept us going without really recognizing it. You know, and I, you've heard me talk about probably the teletype machines, the rat-a-tat-tat in those rooms. And I was really happy with how deafening all that was in that room. And that's what I wanted to hear. And I worked hard on, on working with the sound designer on those, on those uh, sounds because I really want to feel like, you know, you're there. But those teletype frenetic scenes came within a whole suspense structure and so the cue had to kind of have a thread through it so i remember walking into the dub stage and the sound the mixers had the music cranked during all that and because you know anticipating the you know john's going to be he's also the composer we better you know and i was like guys i, I don't want to hear that you know so so they're like oh cool and so you know so they think that's when they realize that oh, this guy doesn't have a music agenda it's basically uh, the story it's storytelling you know like you said yeah. you know? and also i think one of the things that films suffer from today and um and against the nature of the movies is that everything is full throttle 
everything. You know, the music's full throttle, the sound's full throttle. There's no point of view from the sound aspect because you have, you have your sound camp on one end of the mix board. You got your music camp over here. They're all fighting. So a really well-mixed movie is where everyone knows what the point of view is. You know, if the car engine on the Jeep, whatever, driving by, it has this rattle in it and it's part of the story, then you want to hear that over the music. But if it's just a car driving by, and it's an action scenes. Why do we even need to hear the fucking car? It's all about the suspense. So there should be the music. emotion. Absolutely. My last question for you in regards to the music process is, is talking about orchestrating. I think it's a fascinating role that mock-ups play leading up to the orchestra recording because it can, obviously, you know, it may be presenting a score to a director to make him or her understand as, as close as possible what it's going to sound like. But does orchestrating your own music present any additional surprises in the scoring room? And do you think with the evolution of synth technology, do you think mock-ups are ever going to get to the point where they sound almost as good as an orchestral and possibly replace well, it? I think some do, actually. If you're a to, to layperson and, and even, even when it's mixed in the film and so forth, I think some actually succeed pretty well. Although then you hear the orchestra play the same thing and it's like night and day. The problem is to produce something that sounds just like the orchestra is producing. You're not writing anymore. You're spending an inordinate amount of hours and sampling and mixing and so forth to create what, 30 seconds, it sounds really convincing when you might have 110 minutes to write. So it's really, in scheduling and, and writing a score, it's really impractical to um, write an orchestral score without an orchestra. And I always say, synth scores are much more time-consuming and agonizing for me because half your writing is producing a sound, and that's the final product. Where if I'm writing for an orchestra, and I know it's purely going to be 100 people out there performing, I can do a sloppy mock-up, and you know, I, I mean, I have to present it and have it sound good enough. Something can be a little off the beat or whatever, and I don't care because I can very quickly write a cue and then know I can go move on to the next one and it's going to be recorded and it's going to sound fantastic with the orchestra. So I love it when a score is completely orchestral and I sit there angry sometimes when I'm writing a synthesized score because half it's not really writing music. Usually, ironically, you're paid far less to write a, a synthesized score. Usually it's for a lower budget movie and so but you're working twice as hard for half the money to, to write a synthesized score. All right, let's talk about Bohemian Rhapsody. First off, I wanted to remind people, ACE nomination, BAFTA nomination, Academy Award nomination, congratulations. I wanted to discuss again, the difficulty of working on a unconventional biopic where you have to boil down a person's career in two hours. You gotta celebrate Queen and their music and Freddie. The first question I had for you was in regards to structure. The movie runs two hours and 13 minutes. It doesn't feel that way, but I can imagine there might have been studio preoccupations in regards to how how Long. front heavy is going to be oh, yeah. the first act <laughs> uh, before things really get kicking. So how is it making it short enough not to drag, but also not missing out on all the emotional detail? Yeah, you, you, you pinpointed one of the greatest challenges behind the scenes of, of the movie because the band's rise was something that, for me, happened a little too quickly. And um, I think once their rise is complete... The film is, it's perfect from that point on. There was this concern, you know, we got to, we got to get through that so that we can, we can get on the good stuff. I'm like, yeah, but people are eating this up. And we would go to test screenings and probably for the first time I've tested films, the audience, they always wanted more, not less, more, 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 more. So we had these internal debates and everyone has their spin on the, the test screening conversations and results of plant questions and, and beg for an audience member to say something was too long to bolster their argument. And this is what happens in every film. So that was something I 
wish we could. I wish they had a little more downtime as a band, just like maybe a few minutes where a scene where uh, they are down in the dumps, things just aren't working, and then the classic structure, you know. And so we did that. We went out and shot a scene of the, the van breaking down, you know. And so I'm like, hey, well, we're literally filming a bump in the road. <laughs> it's like, but it did it did protract it enough where it felt like, okay, they hadn't made it immediately after that first concert where Freddie is going wild, and they're like, who the hell is this guy? So that helped a bit. I'm rambling here because you're tapping into something that was definitely a struggle on the, on the film. But your work, along with Anthony McCartan's screenplay, I just thought it was very efficient is the word I think of. Nice little moments of pushing the story forward. There's, you know, Freddie circling. He has a newspaper and he circles studio renting. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, and it, yeah. you can see that things are, are moving along. Again, before I forget, you were going to write the score in the beginning, right? And then, listen, I saw it twice and before... You made me realize I never realized the movie didn't have a score. That's right. And of course, we've talked about that. That should always be the goal, whether there's a score there yeah. or not. But the, the goal should be no score if you can do it. And uh, although there was this, like you said, like this full intention to write an underscore to it. And I remember reading the script and talking to my agent. And I'm thinking, it doesn't seem like this should have a score in it. But I know the movie isn't even, you know, we haven't even started shooting yet. So who knows what's going to happen? You know, there's always score in these movies. You know, you always you need some underscore for something. I go, that's true. Literally halfway through cutting this film, like uh, this is just going to be a mistake. I designed this whole opening title sequence, had my name in there twice, my composer title, and and Graham King, he looked at me at, at times and was like, "Dude, there's no score in this film, is there?" And like, so we kind of came to agreement, like, "There's no score in this film." So took my name out, and, which then shuffled all the titles, and, and my name fell in this place. You can't even see it. Yeah, so what I did is I used opera for uh, a lot of the scenes where that would have had an underscore with Freddie, which made sense because he listened to opera a lot. And then I, you know, used the Queen music to underscore scenes, which made it much more organic to the movie and much more timeless. And the film will never be dated ever now because there's not some stupid film music in there that makes it feel like a movie of the week. So I would like take the vocal tracks out of like Who Wants to Live Forever when he gets his diagnosis of the doctor and use that whole thing as a scoring mechanism. And then... Um, Another example would be uh, in, in the breakup scene where I use Love of My Life on the TV set. Kind of edited that in certain ways so that the most devastating moments would happen at the key moments of the breakup, you know. And that did for that scene, which uh, Score would never be able to do. It's the moment where she gets up to the window after she says, you know, you're gay, Freddie. And just that key moment that this one part starts at Love of My Life, you know. It sounds cheesy, but it, it really worked. But that's where sound mixing is really important because too loud, it's cheese ball, you know. And too soft doesn't doesn't have the emotional effect I'm looking for. So we, we spent a lot of time mixing that scene. Yeah. Freddie, what's wrong? Something's been wrong for a while. Say it. Say it. I've been thinking about it a lot. I think I'm bisexual. Are you okay? I've known for a while now. I just didn't want to admit it. This is the hardest because it's not even your fault. What do you want from me? Almost everything. 
We talk about pace. We talk about keeping the story going at all times. It's it's a concept of, you know, narrative within the song, specific songs, you know. So for uh, Fat Bottom Girls, you have, you know, when Freddie right. sees a truck driver right. step into the bathroom, another one bites the dust, he's going through the city bars. I was wondering how that might have come about in a process of discovery when you, again, rather than concert and then having a scene just blending the two and just always keeping the story Yeah, going. yeah. I mean, I, I discovered that while I was cutting together because uh, Fat Bottom Girls was his first big concert and um and, and no matter how i cut that how you know cool it was i'm like oh my god the story stopped I, I for some reason i'm just kind of bored because it's just a concert so then you know and they had shot the truck stuff uh, for maybe the intention of using in there so again it, like in all the sequences have to have to keep the narrative going otherwise the film stopped so fat bottom girls is like taking the u.s by storm and so i used all of these shout outs like you know Hey, we're Philadelphia, la la la, and so those inter interspersed throughout that whole sequence made the story of that concert. We're making it, you know, and then the truck driver thing, the this question of sexuality, kind of uh, seed to lay in that scene, and then the other one you talked about bites the dust again, just showing his dissension a little bit. But actually, that bar scene that was not intended to be a montage that it was, and because the bar scene was simply uh, later in the film, he goes to a bar with Paul Prenter. They walk through this bar. They go into this, uh, let's say sexually charged room and then he comes out of the bar and they walk he has this altercation with these guys and it's kind of a cool scene but it was just too much leather for the film but they all start singing queen songs and realize he's freddie mercury so i took that bar scene and integrated it in with bites the dust so that bites the dust wasn't simply about oh we have a new song yeah and then, and then it segued really nicely into the press conference and it helped you understand more when he's kind of at a low or going there i wanted to spend the last chunk of our conversation talking about live aid because I was caught by surprise when I thought this was going to be a quickly wrap-up montage of, of what the Live Aid was going to be. And once the first song ends and it kept going, I was like, yeah. rock on. Like, this is going to be, we're going to be in the concert. Yeah. You know, I, we didn't get to be there in person, but we're going to live it through the movie. And from my understanding, it was the first sequence that you guys shot. Right. And perhaps I can imagine the most complex and it kept coming back to again and again. Yeah, I mean, because it was the first thing that we shot, I could worry about it and agonize over it, and but work on it for a year. Whenever I had free time, I'd go back to it because, of course, Obviously, it was the thing that kept me up at night because um, it was the Death Star sequence for Bohemian Rhapsody. And if that didn't work, we were fucked. Because, like you said, it just, it's just one song and it goes to another. You're like, oh, this is it. This is the end of the movie. So that was the big fear. Like, when the next song comes on, is the audience going to be like, what are we doing? Are we just watching Live Aid now? Is that going to be the end? So there had to be such an emotion into it already that it had to be long enough where it was exhausting, but in a good way. So that it sent the film off with a cathartic feeling, you know, but not too long where you're like exhausted in a bad way. Like, when is this going to freaking end? You know, that was the challenge of that sequence. But mainly it was all the emotions had to be supplanted into that sequence. And so there was already sort of a, uh, an automatic emotion into it because of what you know about Freddie Mercury, what his fate is and so forth, which is why some of the genius in the script is to have him tell the band about um, him having AIDS so that when you go to Live Aid, it even has a greater swan song emotional impact yet it's a celebration but yeah that that kept me up for a long time and um as it is you know a lot of uh, two songs were cut out and then within certain songs a lot of cut out so i'm, I'm happy to report <laughs> I, I did the full live aid version which is going to be released on dvd on so. dvd so people can check out yeah which is great because a lot of the really really cool things that rami malik did on the stage the crazy gyrations and stuff were part of the things i had to cut so i'm so happy that people get to see that it doesn't strike me that way i'm sure it doesn't strike audience but it's 
it's a very VFX heavy sequence, and I think it speaks volumes to Double Negative, you know, who did the yeah. visual effects, and and you guys incorporating everything. Because I can't even wrap my head around what that sequence must have looked like before the visual effects. Oh uh, well, it's just a it's just a big parking lot. It's in a big a, in a field, you know? right? You know, and so those considerations I had to uh, had to come into play when I was cutting the scene because you know every time, even if I went off the stage a little bit with a sliver, it's like fifty grand, you know. So you know, so you blow up shots a lot to avoid getting going going off the stage as much as you can. In my original version of the scene. You know, I was off the stage constantly. We were millions over. You know how it goes. It's like, you know, you greenlit a film based upon, well, we're going to do this. We can do this whole sequence in 50 shots. Literally, that's what was said. 50 shots. And uh, as it turned out, it was something like, you know, 350 shots or 400 shots. And so it was millions over, but that, but it had to be. It had to look that way. So I rejiggered the sequence so that and it works for the sequence where it evolves more. So you don't really see a lot of the audience in the beginning. The next song when he gets up on the stage and suddenly you, you, you get a glimpse of, oh my God, there's so many people. And then, and then as, as the sequence goes on, it, it opens up more and more and more. And so emotionally it worked. So sometimes budgetary considerations will make things better. You know, I shaved like a million bucks off of it by doing that. Mama, just killed a man. The last thing I want to ask you about Bohemian Rhapsody was, again, going back to story exploration, as you venture, you know, into post-production and, and you work with your fantastic producers, you know, Graham King and Dennis O'Sullivan, all the way through release. I, I was wondering how the movie changed in regards to the movie you thought you were making at the beginning, stepping into production, as opposed to the movie that was actually released. Hmm. Well, I think the movie that was actually released was the, was the film I was hoping that we were going to make, um, because I remember reading early versions of this, and my fear was that this was simply going to be a film jacking off the Queen music, period. And there was to be no emotional resonance in it. It was just going to be an excuse for, for that. And um, early versions of the script felt like that to me or what I was hearing, what was the idea behind the movie? Let's just make it a romp, you know, which it is. But I was kind of feeling a little depressed going into it, thinking this is just not going to be, I need to be inspired by something emotional. And then as we started shooting, I'm like, oh, this just might become that movie I'm, I was hoping that we were going to make. And, um, and then I, of course, I had a part in helping make it be that movie. And Ebrami did, the cast, everyone came together to make it that film. And so in the end, I think we we're all very elated that it became the film that it is. And I was elated that the year I spent wasn't making the, the, the film that I was fearing would be made. I think there's a lot of speculations when people are like, oh, that actor is playing that character. I thought performance is going to be amazing, you know. And then you see a trailer and it's like actually good. And then I started hearing people who had seen the movie like, no, you got like you got to go see it. Yeah. And I'm just curious, like, what was it like getting back dailies and seeing the performance? I mean, it's inspiring because the worst thing for an editor is that the moment you see a lead is miscast or bad you know you're you're going to have a year or two of, of a living hell and you're never going to be able to make the film you really wanted to make because there's no getting over that mistake. You can polish that third as much as you can. You can ADR, you can cut in certain ways. You can make the film much better than it would have been, but you have a ball and chain, which is that actor who was not cast correctly. So when I saw the first scenes coming in and that cast, 
I was like, oh, thank God, I'm going to be able to work with this like clay. And no matter what I do, I'm, I don't have to spend my time trying to cover a bad performance up or someone who wasn't right. So that is just a huge ticket of freedom for an editor when all the, the cast is working well. I did have a concern in script stage that I'm like, wow, Rami is all, like in every scene in this movie, every scene. So is he going to tire the audience? Are they going to be so over him by the time Live Aid comes? I was afraid of that. But then uh, a couple weeks into it, I was like, oh, no, no, we're not going to have this problem because he's so likable. He's so affable and he never got old. Absolutely. It's a fantastic performance. It's a fantastic movie. And John, I want to thank you so, so much for sure. taking the time to yeah. talk to us. Thank you. Because in regards, to, <laughs> in regards to the work you've produced, the work you're looking to produce, I am beyond excited. So I wish you the best of luck for the start of the new year. And thank, thank you. you so much again. Thank for you. Me. You too. And there you have it, folks. I would like to thank John for welcoming us into his studio to record this episode. If you like the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever platform you're listening this on. Share it with your friends as it helps us bring you month-after-month conversations with wonderful guests. Thanks again, and stay tuned for upcoming episodes. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access. Soundstage Access.